0: This episode of CrossCut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines.
1: Hey, welcome to CrossCut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the Managing Editor at CrossCut. And today we're talking about a crisis in education. But which crisis? The answer may seem obvious. We're clearly talking about the pandemic here, but we're not just talking about the pandemic. Education, and public education especially, is always in some form of crisis for someone. Gaps in student opportunity and achievement, for instance, existed long before anyone had heard of COVID-19. What the pandemic did, and this is a well-worn idea for anyone who's been tracking the reporting or parenting a student through this period, is that it made the problems in our schools impossible to ignore, and it also may have presented some solutions. Those persistent problems and unlikely solutions are the subject of this conversation with two important figures in Washington State's education system, Superintendent of Public Instruction Chris Reichdahl and Yudi Yamase Hawkins, the Vice President of the Seattle Education Association, which represents the teachers in the state's largest school district. Hawkins and Reichdahl offer some unique perspectives in this talk, which took place on May third, 2022, as part of the Crosscut Festival. But this isn't a battle between administrator and educator. Reichdahl is actually very sympathetic to teachers. He was one. Instead, this conversation, which is led by Crosscut News Editor Donna Blankenship, is an examination of an education system at a crossroads from people who understand what it's like to be in the classroom with the students who are most impacted by these crises. This conversation and all other conversations on the social justice track of the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by Waldron, which would like to share the following message. Waldron helps organizations and people to reach their full potential, guiding human-centered journeys to organizational and professional success with courage, compassion, and discretion. Clients seek out Waldron when their brands are on the line for impactful board consulting organization and leadership development, executive coaching, career transition, and career management. Waldron is proud to support CrossCut, a forum for truth and dialogue that increases knowledge, understanding, and compassionate participation. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show.
2: Thank you, UT and Chris, for joining me today. Let's chat. It's clear the pandemic helped uncover inequities in our education system, and it may have even helped improve some of those problems in our public schools. I'm curious what you think. Are there ways that our education system is changed for the better because of COVID-19? Chris, why don't you go first?
3: Yeah, thank you, Donna, and thank you to the whole CrossCut team uh, for having us. It's good to be with UD again on the the screen here. There's no question that the moment, as you said, uh, magnified everything. Uh, It magnified inequities, and it, it created this opportunity for some students, some educators, some communities who really wanted something different, and it gave them that opportunity. We've got a lot of districts now offering a permanent remote option for students, particularly in secondary who are balancing maybe work Um, Or just simply learn better or feel safer uh, by being remote. So we're seeing instructional models that have certainly evolved out of this for the better. And then I do think it's going to take us longer. But one of the the things that sounds a little odd, but that I'm grateful for is that it definitely uh, put a big spotlight on student mental health. This was a crisis. I mean, I I, I read the title of this as an education crisis, and I really think what we have is a student mental health crisis right now, and it was building pre-pandemic. And certainly during the pandemic, I think what a lot of families became very clear about was the weight of the world is on our students. Um, It's always been stressful to be in school at times. Uh, Right now, it seems persistent and ongoing. Um, Our use of social media tools and The inescapability of negativity in our lives, it tracks us and follows us, and algorithms are written to feed it to us. And, you know, we didn't experience that mostly as children, but our students are. They're they're a generation of young people who, from the moment they had a smart device in their hand, um, have been shaped significantly by a lot of the tragedy around the world, uh, violence in our country, racial violence elections up in the air, abortion rulings that are leaked out, climate change injustice that is uh, imminent. They feel all of this. So I yeah. think the good news is a lot of policymakers have said, wow, we really have to invest in significant resources for student and staff mental health, and, and they took a big step last session. So there's there really are positives that have come out of this.
2: Okay. Thank you, Chris. Um, UT, what, what do you think on this topic? When I think about... Um
4: our current reckoning with education. I don't think that it's new. I think that the pandemic brought us collectively into a focus to relook at what it is that we experience as children of a new generation and a new technology space in the way in which we connect with kids. Um, And so liberation in education has been a constant conversation How do we bring forward what was a traditional experience into a modern space, a new kind of conversation? And I believe educators and students have been at the forefront of that conversation this entire time. They've had to have those conversations intimately um, about what this collective experience of a pandemic means as they went from remote transitioning back to in person in the midst of a pandemic, as they adjust every time we have public health changes they're having those conversations about how education coincides with their lived families experiences, how, what support means with their families at home from both sides as educators and as students. And I think that as a collective system, what this has done is bring forward what has been a conversation of modernizing education in the interest of children um, in black and brown communities for generations. Uh, this is a civil rights conversation from its origin about what makes a better education system because in communities that have been oppressed, education is a liberation. It's a space of freedom and rights and, um, access. And so we have to take change very seriously right now. And if we don't learn, we are going to fall back into what normalcy was, which was not an experience for, um, my family, uh, generations within my family, um, we have always been aware of the larger impacts of the whole world, so this yeah. is not a new conversation.
2: Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say um, we don't want to go back to nor- what we called normal before. It's just moving forward is what we want to do. Yeah, um, you can feel free to interrupt each other if you wish. Um, I'm not. Don't don't get too crazy, but that'll be good. Um, obviously, not everything about the pandemic was good for schools or families. If you could go back and change something, what would you do differently? Um, Chris, why don't you start?
3: Oh, it's such a powerful question. <clears throat> Obviously, if you could go back, and I, I do not live my life in hindsight because it's uh, not very healthy, generally speaking, but but our our inability to embrace the reality of technology on the front end of this was massive. We all know it was here. More students were turning in homework. They were expected to do their work. They were navigating um, systems of knowledge and inquiry and through the web. And then suddenly the, the, the crisis hit us and we needed to connect 300,000 families, which you know, we did ultimately, which was very, very good. But it's not as if we didn't know how dependent we were becoming on technology and the economic inequities of that. And sometimes the geographic inequities. We had families with plenty of resource, but if you live in parts of rural Washington, there's just quite literally no way to connect there is no broadband. There is no satellite technology. So you know that's just one aspect of it. This this idea that we often know our our deficits and we don't address them until crisis. And so what inspires me is what is the deficit we're now that we know we're going to hit in the next crisis? And I guarantee you, it's economic inequality. It's racial inequality. It is definitely a question uh, of mental health for young people. We already know it. So we ought to get on to solving that right now before the next crisis.
2: Did we completely solve the technology inequalities? at No, this
3: point? No. no, no. We, we deployed 300,000 connected devices, which was great. Um, we ended up with, I believe, something like 100,000 web-enabled connections who otherwise could not. But we still, by the end of this uh, remote time last year, had students who had no choice but to drive to a library or a community facility or for a school because that's where they could get connections. So. It's a big partnership between the feds and deploying last mile fiber, uh, local communities, families, and schools. We, we've got a lot of work to do, and it's it's a long mm-hmm. proposition. So no, and we didn't totally solve it. Still,
2: and aren't kids still sharing devices at home? Um,
4: well, these are things that I think I absolutely yeah. have been the the missteps of some of our process, is not retaining those systems into the longevity of our school system, when we think about returning to normalcy or this idea of coming back into education, um, I would. what I still hear from educators, what I still hear from students is that those systems that really worked for them, the systems that kept them connected, those are the things we have to maintain. And I think the biggest regret is that those conversations are not still front and center because that's the stability we've needed as we've had to shift forward and back in order to make sure kids stay in school um, and make sure that they are able to connect with schooling with their own capabilities and abilities as Superintendent Reichdahl spoke to. We're talking about a new generation of kids where technology is a very meaningful part of their everyday experiences. So if our systems don't do that work now of creating technology sustainability, um, I, worry. I worry that that's not in place or the targeted focus of some of our conversations right now because we're still very reactive in a lot of spaces because there's a lot of weight still on school systems right now.
2: So is there anything else um, UT that you would change if you could go back in time and change how how things went with early pandemic? Um,
4: So I came into this role as a a union leader um, in the middle of the pandemic. Um, And prior to that, my work personally in education had been supporting schools um, across Seattle around racial um, equity and social justice work, as well as um, really intimately working with communities who are directly marginalized within public education. So I worked with the indigenous communities within black communities um, specifically. And and I think that that still persists. That's one of those issues for which when we talk about these big system changes that we need to make, we often don't get to the heart of our um, communities in those conversations before we act. So I always feel like that's a space where engagement needs to be improved and um, we have a collective experience to build from. So I do believe there's been gains in that, but I do believe it didn't necessarily reach our students as strongly as well. Their voice has been incred- incredibly pivotal, pivotal in all of our work. Um, and they, I would love for them to have a, have a stronger voice in some of our conversations from the beginning, from the beginning. They will yeah. charge us forward into what's next and what's needed in education.
2: We At CrossCut, we've been amazed by student voices lately. Our education reporter, um, Fennis Buhayan, she just um, does such a great job connecting with young people, and we just want to hear from them more and more. They have so much to say. Um, they're definitely one of the stakeholders, right, in education, probably the main Absolutely. stakeholder.
4: Um, And when we look at stories mm -hmm. across time, um, especially in uh, oppressed communities, those education stories carry a lot of weight because they tend to be generational. Mm -hmm. And so if we listen to them, we look at what things have not been solved. And then also kids are inspiring about what they would like to see in the future. And I think they have a really different look at education after this experience.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. One of the trends that I appreciate in corporate America right now is the 360 degree performance review my daughter has taught me about this. It's designed to be a way to give your colleagues constructive criticism from all perspectives to help them do their jobs better. I'd like to give this a try today. So you both will get a chance to offer some constructive feedback. We'll begin with you, T. How would you, how do you think Superintendent Reichdahl and his team did during the pandemic? What did he do right, and what could have gone better? Mm.
4: As a as a union leader, um, my role in our union is negotiations, and so we've had a lot of conversations across these last two years um, that connect myself and, and Superintendent Reichdahl's work. Um, and I think that what is the hardest part about responding in this last two years is the unknown. So when I think about critiquing somebody, there isn't necessarily a space of knowing what was the thing they should have done. But what I'll say is what I would, um, most certainly things that have come out on the positive, I think our connections to public health conversations, we're all talking around the same pieces of information. That's been a plus. I don't know that that was happening in the same kind of collective conversations prior. Um, when I think about critiques around the way in which um, the pandemic has brought the state, um, as in the governor's space, OSPI, and uh, Superintendent Reichdahl's space, the district, and unions together into the same conversation, is that we should have been more collective in some of our initial conversations together. Um, there should never be spaces where we have to search for each other in the moment, moments of a pandemic And um, more collective conversations, I think, should have been had overall. But I do believe that we've been supportive um, when it comes to seeing the same issues with our kids' mental health, seeing um, educator burnout, which I hope is a recognized space across our our state, and also seeing the spaces for which we can talk about racial inequity and we can see that they're happening everywhere, the inequities um, that come forward for educators, for students, for communities. It doesn't matter what part of this state you're in, those things are persistent and they're real. And so ideally what happens is next in our conversation is funding addresses those at the root cause. And that's what I'm hoping we end up in. I don't know that we're there yet. We've all been really busy. And <laughs> so good. I'm waiting for us to be less reactive and more responsive. Okay,
2: Great. okay. Chris, now, now's your turn. Turn the table back on teachers. What went well during the pandemic? Um, how could they have done a better job during these crazy times? Um, feel free to comment more generally about public schools in our state and not
3: just Seattle, obviously. Yeah, I, I will specifically compliment UT and the team at Seattle and a lot of districts. The, the, labor has a, a voice and the important part about what we do in the state of Washington is we recognize that through statute. We, we legitimately have collective bargaining at the local level for a reason because the best answers aren't in Olympia or Washington DC. So I do want to be complimentary through all of this. What we saw is labor and management really coming to the same conclusion, whether it's resources or public health or safety, we had real geographic differences. So, so labor unions in Seattle didn't, didn't have the same focus as a labor union in Wapato or Yakima. I mean, let's be clear. There's very big differences, but, but generally just want to be very complimentary of that. I think if I'm, you know, Thinking about the future and what we could do better, um, when we respond uh, at state with statewide activities, whether it's technology or, or something else, which we did within the first legislative session, the legislature added 60 or 70 or $80 million for forever uh, for technology and devices for students. I think our challenge is we always have this tension between state and local control. And, and if there's anything I would challenge organized labor to do is remember that when the legislature wants statewide solutions we have a job to carry that out and I think the local response is everything's in one giant pot of money and we'll bargain and figure it out and part of that's on the legislature if they want devices to pay for it forever and that money not to go to some other part of the bargain then the legislature needs to carve that out so so mostly I'm laying this on the hands of the legislature but I think it is a tough state that we're in where we get you know pretty darn good results but sometimes targeted dollars are there. And then folks say, hey, they disappeared. And the answer is no, they got reprioritized at the local level. And what Spokane did with it was very different than what Vancouver Evergreen did with it. It's something that is a systemic problem. So I'm not pointing fingers at labor um, or collective arguments because it's their job to represent their members. But I am pointing out a larger issue that, that, that the failure of what we might see coming out of this is that the legislature did solve problems and then chose not to put the right protections around it for it to be a permanent solution. And uh, we'll see if they've got the discipline to do that uh, going forward.
2: Okay, hold on a second. I'm going to get someone on the line from the legislature to um, respond. No, I'm joking. Not going to do that. Um, Quick reminder to people watching at home or in their office um, that we're going to be asking some of your questions soon. um, So be sure to enter them in the chat section on your screen. I read something last week that talked about students losing years of progress during the pandemic. Is this an exaggeration, in your opinion? Anybody?
3: I'll I'll definitely say I think it's a tremendous exaggeration. Again, when you have inappropriately framed a national conversation around education progress around standardized tests, if that's your measure then of course in crisis test scores go down and we saw that in states that never shut down states that never had mask requirements states that never had vaccine requirements we saw assessment scores around the country drop in math and e- english language arts um, and certainly there's impact but what didn't happen was some significant setback where fourth graders are suddenly reading at the second grade uh, what happened is we We have benchmarks where we expect students to be, and in many cases, in math, students aren't quite where we want them to be, but we have another decade with most of these students or five years or 13 years or 12, and sometimes only a couple in high school, but the test score is the failure here, and it's not that assessments are wrong. We need assessments. It's that we've got an entire culture of folks who have built a narrative that you can define an entire education experience or define the effectiveness of a teacher by a standardized test score, and it's just fundamentally wrong. The pandemic did impact us, and students were impacted. I think we have to ask ourselves on the mental health side and the academic side, why did we see some of these effects pre-pandemic? And uh, there are contribution lists a mile long from our larger society that should have us question why there are persistent gaps. Um, And if you use tests as a measure, fine, but shouldn't we be focused on why there's a persistent gap between student groups based on resources, based on race, based on gender, based on sexual orientation, this is the stuff that gets me excited to solve. But a scale score going from 1408 to 1400 in a year means nothing to anybody. And it isn't gonna deter any student from their progress or their success. Um, and I do hope that we'll contextualize this a whole lot better in the next couple of years.
4: I do hope so. I hope that that becomes part of relooking at our state spaces and investments with all of our legislative funding coming in that we actually get to addressing some of those issues. I find the conversation on testing um, quite interesting because we have a system that is based on those assessments, giving us access to secondary education, getting access to scholarship, getting access to spaces. What I don't believe um, that the conversation around test scores and, and having learning loss provides us is a uh empowered view of students you have to like we've been through a pandemic collectively together students have experienced firsthand not only their own experience of survival but also watching adults around them go through this experience elders loss grief and they have prioritized and come about with very strong voices into what they want their education to look like now and so if we minimize their experience to test scores and learning loss we forget all of the resiliency that they've brought forward through this experience and when you look at satisfaction through this experience at this point now where we have a breath to reflect i believe that the connection between students and educators um, and families is stronger than it was before that's one of the things that this experience provided us and in seattle um Those were the days that reformed education that looked forward. Wednesdays became an experience of making sure you made one-to-one connections with students and families about what they believed education should be in this moment and what supports they needed, not only in their basic needs, but in their aspirational needs in education. And I do believe that if we focus on learning loss, then we forget that there's many other things unmeasured in our system around resiliency, progress, and brilliance Um, within our children.
2: So are there new ways that we should be experimenting with measuring how kids are doing?
4: I hope so. I think that one of the things that we forget is that educators come to this profession in order to support children and to support families. And the conversations and nuanced conversations they have with students, the way in which they're able to look at assessments in order to drive Mm -hmm. um, instruction That's the spaces where if they had time and energies and support towards those things, students would have a more personalized education experience. I think the pandemic provided that for a lot of students who otherwise um, would have been impacted by silence within the classroom or um, lack of visibility within a school building. Mm -hmm. or inability to speak about their cultural settings at home, or inability to have connection in order to share about their lived experiences at home. And now we have a different um, way in which that is supported in our education system. Students want to bring those conversations forward um, more openly now. And if we don't harness that, then we are suppressing their voices around grades and learning
2: loss. So are we seeing that in person now too, that that their real selves are coming to the classroom more? I believe so.
4: I would say that um, when you look at even the January transition, um, where students started to talk about their health, started to talk about after the Omicron surge and what was happening, that they wanted schools to be open, that they needed things just like the adults and educators in classrooms. Mm-hmm. They had similar needs and they could talk about them out loud collectively. Um, and ideally, districts and, and and educators and the state listened um, and were able to provide those things. But a lot of that becomes the nuanced conversation between we can give money to certain things, but how strong is that and supported are those conversations at the local level? And I believe educators and unions come to those conversations really with support for student voice.
3: Yeah, the, the take I'll, I'll add to this is, you know, we're looking at some other states right now who have school climate Uh, They formalize school climate evaluation, listening directly to student voice, and they're putting into their performance systems. So they're balancing, you know, these historically two measures of math and English language arts with school climates and sense of self. Do students have a sense of belonging? If you look at all the literature for a long time, you'll realize that the students with most success post-secondary, when you hold constant income, of course, is their attendance at school and whether or not they had a sense of connection to their courses, the coursework they took. When they had choices in that and they attended school generally those are co-varying because they like school they loved it they feel a sense of belonging they do really well i would much rather ask that question of third through eighth graders every year a couple times a year and then move systems to support them than checking in once again to find out uh, whether or not they've got their nines down in numeracy or they've got their fractions we still need to check on that stuff Mm -hmm. but we do that every day professional educators are amazing they have assessment tools to do that we're spending tens of millions still on formal assessments that don't mean anything because we don't respond to it in a kid by kid way. We do a a systems look, well, I can survey for that. So I pitched this to the US Department of Ed, do a really robust sample size survey so we get general accountability. We want absolute knowledge whether Washington State's getting better or worse in math, science, ELA, and then let us instead put our assessments and our strategies into attendance, meaningful course taking and student engagement. If you do that, you're gonna get a student who can absolutely tell you what they know and solve problems in many ways. It may not be in the way that you all knew 60 years ago when you memorized a formula in order to get over an SAT score to get you into a college that you then never needed the formula again. It'll be different than that, but it has way more meaning for young people, way more meaning. And I guarantee you employers want somebody who's hardworking and confident and competent and shows up every day more than they want to know what their Smarter Balanced Assessment score was in eighth grade.
4: And in education, kids need to want to show up. We have to create systems where they want to be. And I think one of the things that they've asked for is some changes, changes to the way the day looks, changes into the way they are able to access educators and that choice. I know my daughter's love of math comes from beadwork because that's part of our family. And for the last two years, she sat with my father to bead. And that is how learning happens. And I do think that there are spaces in which we need to provide more connection to family, more connection to cultural spaces, and let those be credible. Because it's not just algebra. It's a lot it's, more than that.
2: It seems like you're both saying that we may have made at least some progress on equity in the past two years, that we're, we're trying. Did, do is that? Am I hearing that correctly? Or do you think... Maybe that's just wishful thinking so far.
4: I think, it's I think long we may process. have different opinions on where we're going. I'd love to hear your, go on ahead, Chris.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure we do. I think, I think it's a long process. And I think the first thing we have to do is recognize that the system was not working for tens of thousands of students. And the crisis of the pandemic gave people an eye into that that hadn't had the eye into that in the past, even though these communities and these individuals were saying, this doesn't work for me. And it was evidence in dropout rates, it was evidence in in lack of engagement rates and all kinds of things. And we kept taking a deficit narrative to that. Instead of changing the system, we would say the student isn't doing well in the system and we gotta fix them. So the awareness of step one, putting in resources of step two and meaningful strategies I think what Yudi's talking about a little bit though, is it's gotta to go to the next level, which is where you design systems of support around families and students based on their need, keep customizing it to their need. Yeah, we can keep changing systems, which we ought to do, but you'll never change the system enough to meet the needs of students who come in in very different spaces and different uh, places. I, I think that is the next evolution. It's not easy, but it, it I promise you, it's not solved <laughs> in Olympia or DC. It is about resources. But it is about empowering local communities to say, hey, what's happening in uh, Callville is going to be very different than what's happening uh, in Clarkston. And you've got to give districts, communities, educators, parents the high expectations. And then in some ways, you've got to get out of the way and let them design programs and supports that work for them. Uh, so, so maybe a little migration away from the one-size-fits-all solution coming out of policy bills in Olympia would be a good start.
2: Well, what if you... What if you assess that a district isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing in this area? Do we step in? Is there a way in Washington to step in if there's a bigger problem?
3: We do have systems that are again, historic. We go in and we look at performance based on historic measures of assessments. Um, We can certainly look at attendance. We've got lots of data points and we go in with coaching. That's the system that Washington state is focused on as a system of coaching. I guess what I want to break through and tell you is all the program supports in the world don't quote unquote fix a school if the if the issue is that you have to support the families and the communities individually in those in those schools. They, they need individual supports at significantly higher resources tailored to their interests and how they want to navigate the system more than throwing the next Harvard uh, book at them on change management. And I think that's been kind of a failure is we know it works here. So we'll just bring that model to here. You've got five years to improve. And if you don't improve, we're going to do it again to you for five more years. We should design education systems around what the community tells us they need.
2: So UT, what do you, what do you think? um, Are we making any progress on equity?
4: So throughout this pandemic, um, I find that we've had A collective space of some racial reckoning. I do believe prior to this experience, the conversation that we had around education is most certainly different now. It's very much out loud around um, racial equity, around community supports, around transformation. But what I see that I believe is different than Superintendent Reichdahl is I do believe that there's a lot of power for which the state could change barriers and systems that are systemically racist or systemically oppressive in our education system. And that means making money accountable and empowering communities through that space, if that is your power space. But what I also would love to see that I think a window is closing on if we do not um, really decide to change our systems is that you know good leadership in this time means that we argue with tradition tradition means we stay the same. It doesn't mean we're getting any better. So even in your last comment, um, Superintendent Reichdahl, I heard you talk about how things have been historically one way. I will say that is the thing that throughout these last two years has been the most frustrating as a black and brown person. And I think as a black and brown educator or a black and brown student, because every time we say it's been done this way, That is the antithesis of what I expect in a better system, because status quo is the thing that will most certainly fail our students because they expect better and they're looking for different. They're looking for an improved space. And I don't believe that means getting rid of everything, but if we never put anything down, people will walk away from education. It will not be a nurturing space for us anymore. And I believe students and educators are feeling that burnout more than anyone else. They spend seven hours a day together and they're watching each other be exhausted through our system. And that means we have to let some things go. And there's plenty I would let go. I'm the mother of a incoming kindergartner and I hesitate every day about sending my child to school. Every day. And that's generational. And I have yet to have that fear subside.
1: We'll be back after these messages.
0: Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Year after year of public education in a pandemic. It's thrown so many teachers and students and families into a kind of chaos. But it seems most people can agree on one thing. We can't go back to normal. There's
2: a lot of things that popped up that would have never popped
0: up. And we wouldn't want to anyway. We would face like outright racism constantly. You
4: always
2: do what you've always done. You'll always go where you've always been.
0: I'm Sarah Bernard and this is season three of This Changes Everything, a podcast from Crosscut about the new normal. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It's time to get to some audience questions, which are very interesting. Uh, I've been reading through what they're, what they're asking. Um, let's start with one related to what we were just talking about. Um, how do we get the federal government and also the state government to recognize that equity demands that they fund every school the same regardless of needs? I'm not sure I'm understanding the question exactly, but how, how can you get um, the federal government to um, put money where it's needed to fix fix things.
3: Yeah, some context here, the federal government uh, was 14 or 15% of our budgets a decade ago, they're down to 6% in the state. Our legislature has really stepped up on compensation, supports for students with disabilities, transportation, all day kindergarten. Like when I think about how much the state has invested, our federal government's down to 6%. Now there's some one-time money for the emergency here that's going to go away but on an ongoing basis it's mostly to support students with disabilities uh, it's high poverty school focus and child nutrition are really three of the big areas um, so there's such a small player in leveraging things uh, i will say that most of their focus is at least on paper it's a civil rights focus it goes to communities based on census or poverty data um, that drives more money in the higher needs communities i think I think the question is, how, does the, how do we get our legislature to do more of that? The funding formula they picked, totally rational and understandable, was based on whether or not educators could afford to live in the community in which they taught. So we regionalized compensation, which is the biggest part of our model. But it's time now for them to also think about how to add as much or more than the federal government is adding specifically to communities that need more support and be comfortable with that, be comfortable um, with equity, not equal. So there might be communities that need $18,000 a child, even though the state average right now is 14000 And it can't just come from this marginal Title I federal piece that comes in. It's got to be significant state money. There's some, we have what's called a learning assistance program, um, but there's a lot more. And you'll see our budget requests this year start to reflect the idea that even educators um, who choose to work um, in some of our highest poverty communities and who need the most support They ought to have a financial incentive to do that. And um, again, that might put us in conflict a little bit with labor. We'll see. We're trying to work it through a compensation uh, technical advisory group here. But there are things the state can do way more than the federal government, I think, right now for this question.
4: I very much would love to see that. And that action to do something differently will be the investment. What I heard in the question that you asked, um, Donna, was, or the question from the viewers that asked, mm-hmm. um, for, for educators directly within my community, um, uh, within labor and, um, and as professionals, really has to do with quality of life and time and energies. When we talk about what is expected within a school, um, we still are basing that on, equality, on, um, on equal and equality. Mm-hmm not equity. Mm -hmm. And that every conversation I have to have to fight to get counseling within a school building and not have it be pitted against arts. Every time we have to talk about how um, a nurse has to travel between four schools in order to serve, we are unprepared for pandemic. We are unprepared to support any family that falls Um, into a crisis and when we talk about education and crisis there's educational crisis every day depending on who you're talking to and what family is impacted and what student Mm -hmm. needs a support and when you don't have the people there prior when you don't have a school community that feels like it can wrap around itself to support each other we end up um, we end up failing uh, in a way that then alienates us further from the state and the government because communities still get together to support each other ask any educator what they do outside of their working hours it is all about making sure you have services for students and families making sure you're connected that they're getting the learning that they need in order to have access into our society in the next step that's part of the work Um, and right now every day is exhausting Um, to fulfill that. And I think that happened well before we were doing health, public health work too.
2: Yeah. And that, that, that leads me to another question from a reader. I mean, a listener, Um, how do we create a safe space for students and educators as they continue to deal with COVID and violence and mental health issues? Um, It just, it's, these questions are so big, you know, what, what can we do? I'm
4: waiting for the collective focus. We in education and as professionals, there is a direct pressure from districts and the state to take on more and more at every turn. And I don't think that the sustainability is a centered part of our conversation. And it kind of goes back to our technology. We can do a lot to give people a laptop the first year, but ask how many students are dealing with burnt out batteries are burnt out you know um their technology is older now like even within two years of using things every day where's the replenishment where's the refill when does that not become the burden of the people on the ground and I think that those systems need improvements in order to create sustainability into a new space and I'd be very curious to understand whether or not um whether or not we, in this going back to a normal setting, whether or not we actually keep options open for people, because I've heard from many people that education needs options, and we've known that. We've had alternative schools and system, school systems across the country for years. We have never fully invested in those things being quality education in the same way that we
3: have traditional schooling.
2: Chris, do you want to talk about this at all, or tell me? Yeah, what- I just.
3: What I'll add is, again, this this dynamic tension of powerful voices coming to the legislature saying, we've got to solve problems, and so they put $60 million in technology. It's still there. It's, it's $60 million forever. Will districts maintain the priority on technology? We just got the legislature to invest another 300000 when fully implemented on school psychs and nurses and mental health. And what we said to them is, we want you to put a fence around this so that we hire more bodies. You can't just let this money move through the system. And have it land uh, even in classroom teacher and then tell the teacher, there's five more things we need you to do. Like it, it is overwhelming educators. So sometimes the answer is getting more adults, more professionals in spaces so that they can take on more of the work and support more families. But it means discipline at the local level of saying yes, instead of, you know, five and a half percent pay increases or seven percent increases we will take a little less because we're going to hire 10 more people to really do the engagement. And I, and I know that's a challenge. People say you should do both. And I obviously agree. Uh, there's never been a time in our state's history where we've increased compensation as fast as we have in, in, in the last five years. And we are trying to put fences around things that we know um, our students need so that those people are there. Now, finding school sites, finding nurses right now, finding mental health supports is very, very challenging. But I, I do want this to be in part a recognition that, that our legislature has diversified significantly. They are represented differently than they were five and 10 years ago. They bring different perspectives and they've responded. They've responded with real investments. And now we have to have systems in place to make sure that they they actually at the local level turn into those actions. And um, that's part of my job is to say, when do we need accountability around that? And when do we need to put fences around things? I think we're in a pretty good place right now. Uh, it's a long rebuild, if you will, but there's a real, there's a real hope out there that if it's done well, when that student turns around and says, I really am in crisis and I need help, they're not asking their math teacher for that help. That might be a first line of defense, but they're getting a direct referral, they're getting support right there. And then there's a community-based provider much closer to that community by race, by language, by neighborhood um, to, to, to see if that support works better. We just put $50 million into community-based organizations here. And uh, to Yudi's point though on that, that was federal money. That is going to go away in two or three years if we don't backfill it. So Really good progress to sustain. We are doing things differently. It's not. It's not as if we just call it the end, though. There's there's a billion dollars a year flying around right now in federal aid that's going to go away after two and a half years, and uh, some of that will have to be replaced if, if folks want these services to continue.
2: Okay, let's let's end with a question that I had on my mind, and that is, do either of you have some encouraging words for parents? Um, They've just gone through some of the worst years of their generation. They're worried about their kids. They're worried about college. They're worried about their jobs. They're worried about the economy. Is there anything you can say to give parents a little boost, encourage them?
3: I'll start, and it is totally a derivative of my experience as a history teacher, right? I always tried to bring um, the lens of history to teenagers and what teenagers went through at the time of any historical event. We would go back and we'd say, what were 14-year-olds and 17-year-olds doing at this time? Because I didn't want them to connect with names and dates and facts and just massive implicit bias of old white guys in history. I wanted them to know what their peers were doing. And I say that because when we walk through that history, what I would tell every parent today is... We are the sons and daughters and granddaughters and grandsons of people who survived a pandemic and a global war in which millions of Americans were pulled out of school to fight internationally. Millions of women were dislocated um, to work in factories. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of our Asian Pacific Islander brothers and sisters were ripped from their homes, their businesses taken. We as a government have put people through incredible trauma before And sometimes people can justify that in crisis, and sometimes it's inexcusable. But we are the products of that. We did get through that. This moment that feels so overwhelming from racial injustice to whatever you feel about elections and the Supreme Court and the global pandemic and financial crises, whatever we feel right now and the weight of that, that has been felt by generations before. And we do persevere. Our students have learned a ton about what it means to have the system dislocated and have to navigate it. And it comes with hardship and pain, but it also comes with a lot of learning. And I know if we're committed to the equity that UD has spent her career and her life in and lives daily in, in what we're trying to do, I promise you there will be bright lights and lots of opportunity for young people, especially as they cling to it and grab it. There is hope out of this thing because we've lived it before Um, And I think we have a better knowledge about it today. And I just never put anything past young people who have experienced something like this because a couple prior generations have shown us that it builds strength in them and it builds uh, a lot of resilience. And I believe in that. I do.
2: Okay, UT, you get the last word on this.
4: So I'll take that same um, generational approach in my response as well. Um, I appreciate that, Superintendent Reichdahl, because... um, in my living ancestry space right now. I have a mother who was bused into communities outside of her black community to assimilate into white spaces because she was brilliant. And that was a space they thought she could thrive in. Um, But it took her away from her community and her space and investment in people. I have a father who is a boarding school survivor And when we think about that history, that is one generation back for me. I lived an experience of six high schools trying to find any space that felt rooted in who I was. And now my daughter is five going into the public school system because I believe in liberated education. But I want to make the thread for which education has consistently been outside of a classroom. The places I've thrived in learning have been at my community's kitchen tables, has been as a daughter of movements for oppressed people, has been in the after-school conversations with educators who understood who I was and what that means. And as we walk into, as I walk into as a parent now, with that next space, um, looking at what my child's future might be who is white presenting, but black and indigenous to her core in who she believes herself to be at five. I worry that we won't change enough and that she will experience dehumanization or eraser of who she is in her fullness. So I know that she will get a full education at my kitchen table within my community every day. And what my hope is, is that The modernizing of our education system provides space for her from kindergarten and pre-K right now, where she comes home talking about school as a space she loves, but that never fades. And historically, I know that happens for indigenous kids between sixth and eighth grade and for black and brown kids by the age of, by first and second grade, which is where I taught because recognizing yourself in a racialized world happens very young at about my daughter's age. And so it'll be about adults changing their behaviors. Educators are already on that path. They see it because they talk with students every day about what they now expect from all of us, which means supporting their identity spaces, believing in who they are, and really finding um, a way for which they can come and bring the learnings they are doing in their everyday here, and the pandemic provided us a great space of recognizing that in kids. They lived it every day with us, and they have many, many great opinions on what they need to be talking and learning about right now. So I think we should be present with them.
2: Thank you both. This has been a fascinating conversation. I wish we could go on, but we're out of time. So thank you, um, UT Hawkins and Superintendent Reichdahl, um, for sh- spending this time with me and with our audience in the virtual world. Mudo,
4: I raise my hands, thank you.
1: And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Yudi, Chris, and Donna for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com slash events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard. And I wanna pause here and make a plug. Sarah is also the host and producer for an excellent narrative podcast series called This Changes Everything, which just released its third season on the pandemic's impact on education. If you enjoyed this talk, please check out that podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes, or you can search This Changes Everything on your podcast platform and subscribe. Okay. The episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea Omira. and Krasnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.